Welcome to the NXP Podcast, focusing on the technology and issues behind today's connected world. I'm guest host Sam Abu-Al-Samad of Navigant Research, and today we're going to take a deep look into the changing structure and role of vehicle networks. Connected vehicles mean more data and lots of it. This data can be beneficial in multiple ways, whether it's for new applications and services for consumers, fleets, and manufacturers, or the data used for advanced driving assistance systems. The vehicle data revolution means big changes in the way automotive networks operate. To gain some insight into these changes, I'm joined by Ray Cornyn, Vice President of the Vehicle Dynamics Group and Networking at NXP Semiconductors, and Brian Carlson, Director of Product Line Management at NXP. So, Ray, let's set the, uh, the vehicle data stage for us. What's happening with vehicle data currently, and where are we heading uh, with, with all this data that's being generated by all the sensors and, and other sources of information in the car? It's a very good question. And today, the data that's inside the vehicle is predominantly remaining inside the vehicle. But as you look to the future, the, the ability to access and use that data uh, maybe inside uh, a cloud infrastructure has become much more, more significant. But to handle that data securely and also ensure that the right data is sent to the infrastructure is, is critical. And there's a massive amount of, of data actually in the vehicle today. You think of all of the, the sensors uh, and the informa- information that's there and some of the information that comes from ADAS systems, you've got a massive amount of data that you can use to do intelligent things uh, understanding the environment that the vehicle's in. How much data is actually being generated today and how much we can expect in the future? You know, we've heard about you know, some of these automated driving prototypes that have as many as 30, or 30 to 40 sensors around the car to try to understand the environment around the car. How much data is there that's being It's amazing produced? today that they're already saying that the data available inside a car is generating about four terabytes of data every hour inside a vehicle. Not all of that information is usable. and You wouldn't necessarily want to send that all to the cloud, but there is a lot of valuable information in there already. And today that is moving around inside a lot of kind of legacy architectures, a lot of uh, legacy networks inside the vehicle today. And what we're seeing is a move to modernize the vehicle infrastructure to allow that data to be more um, easily handled and acted upon. We have a lot of vehicles already on the road that are connected. You know, I think we started in the mid late 90s uh, with GM OnStar, and that has accelerated pretty dramatically in the last decade. How many vehicles are, are being shipped now with connectivity and, and where do we expect that to go in the coming years? The recent figures that, that we've seen said that in around about 2018, there was about 40% of the vehicles actually uh, were uh, shipped as connected vehicles. And by the time we get to around about 2025, that's starting to look in the, the 70, 75% range. So there, there's a lot of connectivity there in the, the vehicle pool today. Just the level of data and information uh, and access has been relatively limited. It's been predominantly connection into an infotainment system. And what we're now starting to to talk about is connectivity through to all of the information that's inside the vehicle. There's uh, things that you don't realize today is your car is sitting there recognizing and measuring simple things like the exact temperature and pressure that it's sitting in 
they have rain sensors on them. You've actually got the best weather station um, cloud sourced um, in the world, basically. Uh, and there's many more sensors. As you said, there's the ADAS sensors, but there's even nowadays very intelligent tyre pressure sensors that can give you very detailed information about the roads you're actually driving on. What types of connectivity do we have in these vehicles? Uh, one, one of the challenges for uh, for automakers is the relatively long development cycle compared to a lot of consumer electronic products. You know, it takes three, four, three to five years to bring a new vehicle to market. And, you know, these are also tend to be much more long live products than typical consumer yes. electronics. We don't scrap cars out every two years like we do with smartphones. So what type of connectivity are we using and how is that changing? Traditionally inside vehicles today, the, the standard bus structure is what's known as CAN. And that's been around for a fair number of years. Um, but as the data inside the vehicle uh, has increased, there's been a move to, to start moving data around on Ethernet inside the vehicle. And then the connectivity outside the vehicle then tends to be 5G or some form of uh, V2X interconnect. So you're seeing the, the kind of legacy networks being integrated into more modern gigabit Ethernet type networks inside the vehicle. Before we get into all the, the deep technical details of how you're going to achieve this, let's talk a little bit more about why are we taking advantage of this data? What's the benefit to consumers, to the manufacturers? How's the role of data going to change the, uh, the customer experience? And you know, especially now as cars in general are becoming so good that from a pure product perspective, you know, it's hard to find a bad car anymore. So, so manufacturers really want to focus on that customer experience component. So tell, tell us a little bit more about how we're using data to benefit that. There's a number of different benefits that you, you look at in terms of having access to that data. There's the benefit of upgradability in vehicles. You know, exactly as you said, people don't want to throw away their car after a couple of years because it uh, has uh, become dated in its functionality. So the ability to... Uh, significantly upgrade vehicles in terms of software and being able to effectively send large amounts of data to the vehicle to upgrade and not just the infotainment system, the whole vehicle allows manufacturers to build in uh, future proofing of their vehicles. But then you also get the benefit back to, to the car makers in terms of the information that's provided back from the vehicle in terms of predictive maintenance, feature availability, ability to actually just source massive amounts of data so that they can actually offline develop and test new functions. So there's a number of different benefits both to the car maker and to the consumer in that. And Brian, do you want to talk maybe a little bit about some of the benefits to the, the consumer? A big trend we see, especially with OEMs, they want to be able to provide differentiation. So we think this is a key area where they can adapt the vehicle over time to the usage uh, the usage patterns of the of the driver and the passengers. So uh, being able to adapt that car over time to make it more intelligent and to be able to provide more functionality that is aligned to those preferences uh, would provide a lot of value to the user. Um, also being able to capture that information of the driver's preferences too. That information can be used when they go from one vehicle to another, uh, potentially when they go from their personal car to a rental car uh, or um, other, other vehicle. They, they know their, their, where their seat position is. They know their, their preferences for their uh, um, XMs, you know, radio, et cetera. So there's those benefits. Uh, there's also the, the knowing that your vehicle is always up to date with safety and security and that I don't have to bring the, the vehicle to the shop. And this is a, 
a big hassle for a lot of people. But one thing that's interesting is you can monitor the road conditions. So all this different data can tell if you hit a pothole and all that information could be accumulated across all the vehicles. So the Department of Transportation or whoever's repairing the roads would have access to information. So that allows the roads to be kept and prioritized uh, repairs just based on the data that's being streamed up, up to the cloud. Yeah, I actually think of the benefits of, of big data in terms of when you have you know, a mass population of vehicles with wheel sensors for ABS systems, your sensors for dynamic control, there's some really nice intelligent uh, tire sensors that now actually listen to the road. And, and if you can continue to dump that data up into the cloud, the analytics that can be done on the road around you are, are quite phenomenal. As Brian said, you know, if you think of, you know, especially we're sitting here in Detroit, which has notoriously <laughs> difficult road conditions. Yeah, if you don't like the it. weather, just hang around for a couple yeah, of hours. Yeah, yeah, and, and the roads pay the price of the, yeah. the changing, um, changing weather conditions. So if you've got a set of cars that are driving down I-84 and, and you can detect from them, the wheel sensors will re react when they're going over potholes. And that information can continually be up to the cloud uh, or uploaded to the cloud. But the, even the degree of pothole can actually be measured by those sensors. So the local government and cities can say, well, actually, we have to go and repair that one because, you know, we, we've sourced data from 500 cars this morning and that's a, a really big pothole. And you'll have all of that information just automatically been fed up into the cloud. The new intelligent tyre sensors, they can actually detect when you start to drive on ice. So instantly you've got information going back up to the cloud saying, this is black ice that's on the road here. And then you can send a warning to all the vehicles around it. So the amount of data that's there and the amount of things your vehicle knows and it's very valuable information to everyone around in society in general is just it's phenomenal in terms of what can be done with that data. One other use case I'll talk about where we're seeing a lot of interest too is in the usage-based insurance. We're already seeing some of this today with the dongles that people are plugging in underneath their steering wheel. I saw a report from one of the largest uh, U.S. Uh, insurers that 70% of their drivers are actually getting reduced rates due to the use of those, uh, those dongles. And their rates typically, I think, were 14, 15% uh, on average. So, I mean, there's actually a cost savings. So based on your driving behavior, it could actually allow you uh, to, to get reduced uh, insurance rates. And interesting thing about that is now that that data is all being accumulated, it's not an aftermarket dongle that now the OEM has the capability to actually participate and you start to see some OEMs that are either getting directly involved in insurance or they're working with an underwriter to provide insurance. So you can almost imagine over time kind of a subscription fee where I get all these great services, uh, safety, all, all these different upgrades to your vehicle over time for kind of a subscription service. You pay a monthly fee. Maybe it's your car payment. It includes your insurance, all these services as part of that monthly fee. So there's a lot of attraction to the OEMs to be able to have um, to have revenue, a stream of revenue that comes monthly, not just a one-time sale of the vehicle, but have a monthly revenue stream that goes on uh, for 10 years because the average life, uh, I just saw the other day, the average life of a vehicle on the roads in the U.S. is, is 10 years. People, Actually, I think it's closer to 12 now. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's increased. It's, going yeah. Up. Yeah, it's, it's increased. So uh, going back to what Ray was saying too, is over time, we, we talk a lot about the upgradable vehicle. Over-the-air updates are a very critical aspect of that to be able to uh, proliferate new capabilities over uh, the life of that vehicle over a decade. 
Uh, so you don't want to be driving a vehicle that's 10 years old where through software upgrades or a software-defined vehicle, you could actually uh, improve that user experience over the whole decade of the, of the car. Tesla has definitely proved over the last six or seven years since they launched the Model S and subsequent models, the consumer benefits. You know, can, Tesla customers love the fact that they can get added features to their car you know, after they bought it. You know, it just magically appears. So that that using that technology in that way can be a huge user experience and customer experience benefit that brings customers back again and again to buy your vehicle. Exactly. Loyalty is the key word there. I mean, we talk to OEMs and they want to have uh, customer loyalty. So if you can provide those features and, and there's and Tesla's a good example of that. I, we talk to Tesla owners. They're very uh, enthusiastic and sometimes they'll come in and I don't think they call them Easter eggs, but they get these new features and it's like a present every day. They get, they get some kind of new feature. Uh, or you can play <laughs> asteroids yeah. on the center yeah, screen exactly. of the car. So that's the interesting thing is it becomes really an interesting, you, your owners become very enthusiastic and they become more loyal to your brand. So we see that for OEMs that there's a real value here to have that stickiness uh, to providing those capabilities within the vehicle. So those that invest in the infrastructure to support all these things are the ones that will come out ahead over time. So one of the interesting capabilities that's enabled by all this connectivity is, is manufacturers being able to collect telemetry uh, data from vehicles and understand and correlate you know, how that data relates to uh, things that are potentially going to fail in the vehicle or, or that are degrading in the vehicle. Can you talk a little bit about you know, what, what are the sorts of things that can be done uh, to benefit consumers in particular uh, or, or fleet operators uh, when, when you have that kind of data? This actually is one of the most interesting applications, I think, of vehicle data because it not only benefits the OEM, it benefits the, the driver, consumer, or the vehicle also. So when you have all that data, you have access to all the different sensors. You can put a lot of intelligence both at the edge and in the cloud uh, to look for different what we call anomalies if there's some kind of degradation going on. Once you know that something's about to degrade, you can actually look at that data from that individual vehicle, but also correlate that across a whole fleet fleet of vehicles. What that allows you to do is to determine, first of all, if there's something that's a, a fleet-wide issue, maybe it's going to be a, a recall issue. You can prevent a recall, which is very costly. When you know that something's about to go bad, you can tie that data and information into the business intelligence of the uh, OEM because they, they maintain huge data lakes of all the information from manufacturing and sales and warranty. That data now becomes really critical information to the supply chain part of that. So when they know that a part's about to go out, they can actually make sure that that part's available and it's actually in stock at your dealership. So the user experience is really good because if it is something that they can't fix over the air, if you do have to go to the shop to replace a physical part, that part will be there. You won't have to wait days for a part to be shipped from across the country, for example. And there's even potential uh, where if you have tied in some of your personal information to your vehicle account or your vehicle owner's account, like your calendar, uh, when it detects something that is going to need to be serviced or even just regular maintenance, you know, it can provide an alert to the driver and say, hey, would you, you know, would you like to schedule an appointment, a service appointment? And you know, it can find a spot in your calendar that, that's suitable and, and do that for you automatically. Exactly. So this whole thing is about convenience to the user, right? The vehicle data has so much value, like I said, not only for the OEM, but also for the end user. And that's a great example is we want to make life as easy and, and seamless as possible, eliminate the trips to the shop. And like I said before, I think uh, I've had to go, you know, spend a half day just getting uh, things updated when they could have been done over the air. So it's all about convenience uh, for, for 
the user. There's an example I, I was aware of where a car maker started to see some wear issues and could detect the data. Historically, they would have had to recall the vehicles to reprogram them because they, they understood that the wear mechanism could be accommodated by software. In the case where you can do this properly over the air, the user will not actually experience any issue. That update can be made in the background and the vehicle can remain roadworthy the whole time of its life without ever having to go back to a dealer. So the benefits to the owner in terms of convenience of that type of predictive maintenance and the ability where a software update can actually fix something without you ever perceiving an issue is a massive benefit both to the, to the user and to the car company as well. One other example of this is I bought a vehicle that had one of the new nine gear automatic transmissions. And when they first came out, there were a lot of issues and they knew it when they first came out. Uh, they had to sit 20,000 vehicles on a lot until they worked the software out. Well, even after the vehicles were sold, uh, you know, experiencing issues with the transmission, it was all software. So with vehicle data, you can could actually be monitoring all those transmissions around the world real time, look for anomalies, look for issues, and actually be optimizing the performance of the transmission. So I'm getting smoother shifts and better performance, better fuel economy. And that's all done behind the scenes. Uh, and it gives a much better user experience because I don't have to go to the shop. I don't have issues with uh, feeling my transmission not shifting as smoothly as it should. But as another great example, I thought about how this can all be done dynamically through the cloud by monitoring that data and understanding what's going on before the customer calls you with a complaint or ends up with a shop to tell the guy there's something wrong with my transmission. A lot of the benefit there as well comes from the fact that manufacturers can see how people are actually using that vehicle in the, in the real world environment. They may find things or find uh, situations, scenarios that they may not have thought of during their testing or they may not have seen during their testing. And so that that feed, that can feed back into their product development process as well and make future products better as well as the current products. That's exactly right. Uh, you can actually put features within the vehicle and test those with real data. If you have a million vehicles on the road and you want to test some functions, what's a better way to do it than have a million vehicles in parallel driving around testing it? You can get direct data from those vehicles all instantaneously. It's actually pretty amazing. We come from the embedded side within the vehicles, but the, the whole cloud infrastructure, we work with a lot of cloud providers and how much work can be done in the cloud and how you can take that data, run it through machine learning and do artificial intelligence and then feed that back into the car. It's really amazing where the technology is going and how automotive is actually being positively impacted by all the breakthroughs in uh, artificial intelligence. How does the data that we get off of these vehicles play a part in improving the overall functional safety of both current generation vehicles as well as next generation highly automated vehicles. You can't have safety without security. If there is a, uh, a vulnerability that someone could attack the, the vehicle and, and impact the safety, there's new technologies that are coming into play in the vehicle called intrusion detection and prevention systems. And that's really becoming important even to the point where uh, governments are talking about legislating requirements to have this IDPS within the systems. Uh, so that's going to be key to monitor in real time what's going on in all the networks in the vehicle to understand if there's some kind of you know day zero attack on a vehicle and that that, that could be looked at across the fleet and to be able to react and and to shut that down uh, overall safety in ge uh, general uh, is very critical of course in, in automotive and these uh, these devices require a pretty high level of, of safety as we go forward uh, one thing we're seeing is the trend to go from what's called azel B uh, to a higher level called Azel D. 
this is something that we've actually designed into the S32 devices, including S32G, uh, that uh, goes from what we used to call fail safe, where if there's a fault, the device just puts it in some kind of safe mode uh, to what we call fail operational, which is becoming even more important as we go to autonomous vehicles, because you don't want to be driving down the road. Uh, something happens and all of a sudden it just stops in the middle of the road. So a fail operational mode that can be supported through an ASIL-D system allows you to gracefully uh, maybe a degraded mode of operation, maybe it's to drive over to the side of the road or do something else. But these devices like S32G have built into them uh, the intelligence and capability to localize the fault and understand how to react to the fault and to recover from the fault if possible. So safety is a huge issue and that, uh, that'll that continue to uh, increase as we go forward. And we've designed in to support ASIL-D actually across our whole family of S32 devices. Is that something you would uh, do through having additional cores on the, the on the chip, um, with and perhaps also having some diversity of cores, different types of cores on the chip that can give you that fail operational capability? Yeah, safety is a really uh, functional safety is a really complex topic, and lockstep cores, of course, uh, redundancy is a key part of it. Some people think that if you have redundant cores, that's enough. But it's not. Um, that is a key thing you do need to have. Uh, there's a lot of monitoring that goes on throughout the system to determine if there's faults also. Plus, there's error correction. So if there's an error in memory, you need to, all your memories have to be able to detect and correct uh, errors within memories. Even if you have an alpha particle that hits your memory, you need to be able to recover from that. So I would say uh, there's a lot that goes into functional safety, even at the system level within the chip and then working with other devices within the system to achieve an ASIL-D level. So uh, it is quite complex and redundant cores is part of that uh, strategy. Going back to security uh, for a moment, the uh, you know one of the challenges as we go forward is we add more connectivity to the vehicles, and we're, at the same time we're also adding more and more degrees of automation, you know, both in terms of driver assist features and eventually higher level automation systems that creates the potential for more risk. And so you know those over the air updates, you know, it's going to be crucial. Uh, to, to make sure that the vehicle stays secure and that vulnerabilities that, that are found get corrected quickly. When we've been focusing on the latest processors that we're developing for this market space, security has been number one in the development of the architectures, but not only just building a standard level of security, building a level of security that can be itself upgradable through the whole lifetime of the vehicle. We've recently been developing a new security system for our latest microprocessors, microcontrollers that allow that security to be built in. Some of the first experiences I think people saw in OTA systems that weren't secure really focused the industry. And it's been certainly a big focus for NXP and actually fits very well in with the history of NXP and what we've uh, worked in in security. So you'll see that um, very much expanding in all the new products we're building and developing for this market space. Are there any limits um, you know, to the types of things that you can do with the data? I mean, what, what wouldn't you want to do with the data? What would you want to avoid? People have a right to their own personal information. You don't want to be effectively pushing this into everybody's fear of, you know, Big Brother is watching. So you've got to be really careful with that. There is data inside the vehicle that that is the owner's data and needs to be kept there. So it's important that the information that is getting uploaded into the cloud is specific information that is suitable for the vehicle. And I agree, there's probably going to have to be a little bit of work done 
uh, and some some of the legalities of how that information is controlled and what really is sourced. But just the possibilities and the benefits for generally safety and security in society is is just you know as it's a great opportunity. But with that opportunity, yes, you're right. There's certain things that 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 you do that are personal and you want to remain inside that vehicle. As we start to mature uh, automated driving technologies, we start to deploy robo taxi services, automated mobility services. What are what are some of the benefits that you can get from that connectivity? to help enable those kinds of services for the, the fleet operators or the manufacturers that are, that are running those vehicles. How would we use connectivity in those kinds of cases? Mobility as a service definitely is a, a key application that we're seeing an improved service over time based on location, usage patterns, and just basic analytics. From a fleet perspective, because uh, there's also commercial vehicles, this data is really important for maintaining the fleet, understanding what's going on uh, as far as how the drivers are driving, how the equipment is performing, uh, if there needs to be maintenance like prognostics, vehicle health. I think there's a lot of areas for uh, you know taxi services to leverage the data to be much more uh, streamlined uh, operations, reduce cost, and also improve uh, user satisfaction. You know, based on where their users are, are located, they can derive a lot of analytics, I think, of uh, how to provide the best service possible. It sounds like there's a lot of opportunity from this for uh, operational improvements for, for fleets, whether they're carrying passengers or delivering goods or, or anything else, especially the vehicle uh, analytics, vehicle health reports, understanding, you know, predictive maintenance and diagnostics, it sounds like, and of course, uh, energy use as well in those vehicles. Yeah, and it goes. It even goes even further, even in uh, passenger vehicles. As you're driving down the road, and the prognostics are happening, there's a lot of interesting benefits that come out of that. Also, uh, from the OEM perspective, uh, they can monitor what's going on across the fleet to find out if there's any potential issues across the fleet. Uh, that could, uh, you know, indicate that there potentially could be a recall or some other issue that could be very, very costly when, when the government comes down and, and you have to do a recall that's more public exposure, it's more costly, so they can start you know, to prevent these things. Uh, also, from the, the uh, user's point of view, uh, there's a convenience there because as they monitor these things, they know if you have a part potentially that's about to go out, they can actually tie the data. This data goes into what's called a data lake in the server. That data lake gets combined with all the business intelligence, the supply chain, all of that for the OEM. So now they could actually have that part ready to go at your local dealer before you even know that that part's about to go out. So there's actually efficiencies also from that perspective for the OEM, as well as the convenience for the driver, because when they go to the shop, that part will be available for them. When they maybe go in for an oil change or a tire rotation, uh, even if they weren't planning to do some other kind of service, they could have that done proactively so before they maybe get stranded somewhere. Exactly. That's the real benefit to the uh, the driver is that these kinds of issues are handled uh, ahead of time. And then also the conveniences I mentioned before. I mean, I've been through a couple OTA processes, not even OTA, where uh, my daughter's truck, they sent me a USB stick. I had to plug it in and wait 40 minutes and open and close the doors. And, you know, the process is just not that that good in a lot of cases today. So we want to make that whole process seamless so you don't have to spend your time uh, going through a, through a process or wasting your time taking it to the shop so they can plug it in and, and do updates to your vehicle that way. So it's all about convenience uh, and keeping your car on the road as much as possible and out of the shop. And you wake up in the morning, get a message on the screen, your car's been updated, we fixed these, these issues exactly. or added these additional features and exactly. uh, you're all ready to go. Exactly. All right. So 
Let's dive in a little bit into some of the technical details of how you make this happen. What sorts of changes need to happen to the hardware, to the vehicle architecture, the electrical and electronic architecture to facilitate you know, all of this use of data? One of the first things that, that has to happen and, and is, already, is already happening is the ability. So today's vehicle architectures are relatively simple. I mean, there's a, there's a standard CAN bus interface that basically works in a principle of broadcast. So your sensors and your actuators, you know, things like brake systems, just effectively broadcast information. But it's not in the form that you think of in terms of internet information. So what you then need is, is centralized systems that can actually take those and convert them more into the format that we're, we're um, we're used to for the from the the internet age, so basically you you change you take in from legacy information legacy architectures and then effectively start to pipe them through gigabit ethernet and then you start treating it more in a similar way to you do internet data. So the, you know there is the, the 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 principle that you should actually be able to call up the IP address of one of your braking sensors if you have done the uh, architecture in, that, in a, a modern way. So it's like most things in automotive, you, you don't tend to go in and say, I'm starting completely from fresh again with a complete new architecture. You tend to try and build from what you have today to in, integrate it into a more modern package. And if you even look at some of the, let's call it the new generation of vehicle makers, um, they're doing some really original things, but they are still trying to, to base it in some of the more proven automotive technology, but bring those into the 21st century. And you know, as we get into more vehicle electrification and more automation, it, it does give manufacturers an opportunity, since they're, they're leaving behind a lot of other legacy pieces, uh -huh. to perhaps make a bigger jump. Is, is that right? Oh, that, that's definitely true. And, and we've discussed that before. Electric vehicles make it so much easier to actually the, the whole principle of an upgradable vehicle because you can control things like the way the battery charges. You can control the way the electric motors work in pure software. You don't have you know, this legacy lump of iron that you're carrying around as an engine. So generally the architectures of electric vehicles and the fact that it does allow a more... Um, significant architectural step, definitely. And that's why you see a lot of the features. That's why Tesla were able to make their inroads. And if you look at some of the other electric vehicles that are coming out at the moment, you again see that major step in architectures. There are still some things that are there from the traditional auto industry that everybody wants to use because there's a lot of proven safety there. But you want to be able to upgrade, migrate that into the modern world. So yeah, I mean, a key thing, we call these the disruptive players in the, in the industry. You have your traditional OEMs, and now there's a lot of what we call disruptive potentially that, that are coming in, uh, a lot of, uh, of Chinese companies, a lot of Silicon Valley companies. And if you think about it along those lines is that they have kind of a clean slate. Uh, so they can uh, you know, start from, um, from a point that, that optimizes the vehicle, not something that's evolved over 30 or 50 years. Uh, so with a clean slate and an EV, which an EV over a combustion engine is uh, much more uh, straightforward architecturally uh, and from a complexity point of view, they can get rid of a lot of the harnesses. You know, some of these harnesses, the cables within the vehicles are two and a half, three inches thick. They're, they're hard to maneuver, they're reliability, they're the third 
biggest contributor of weight in the vehicle. So if you start to remove all of that and go to more of a, a streamlined architecture, we talked about Ethernet. You know, Ethernet's really coming into play here, uh, moving to, to gig up to 10 gig and beyond over time. Uh, that's going to really shift how these uh, vehicles are are made, and and that's what we like about it because we you know we develop processors that that manage this data, that move the data, that secure the data, and as the data rates go up, you need more performance, and that's really what we're we're trying to you know to to help drive the industry and support those shifts in architectures that are driven by all the new electronics and more data that has to go through the vehicles. Yeah, you mentioned the, the wiring harnesses, you know, uh, and a lot of uh, car assembly plants. These wiring harnesses are so thick and heavy that when they unpack them, before they can load them into a vehicle, they actually have to run them through an oven to heat oh, them yes, up to make them, them, pli- yes, yes, to make them pliable enough yeah. to maneuver them into the body of the car. Exactly. That's that's an issue. So we, we, we all actually talk about that a lot. It's not just about the weight of the vehicle, but it's actually the manufacturing of the vehicle because you want to streamline the cost of manufacturing for the OEM. So if you can support these new simplified architectures, uh, that brings a lot of benefit to to the OEMs. Yeah, because one one of the things that one of my colleagues was talking about this recently in terms of his team work on a lot of uh, door control modules. One of the biggest issues now in manufacturing for vehicles in terms of the way the the door is the wiring harnesses getting so fat that goes into the, the door that it's starting to be difficult to make it pliable enough when you're opening and closing the door. So that is basically today already got some ne- uh, networking capability in it. It's not as every, it's not a massive uh, web of wires that can across there. Uh, and so the idea that you could simplify this and maybe take it down to one connector, because you have to remember there's a lot of information now coming through. A lot of cars have cameras in the doors. There's the replacement for rear view mirrors or the, the, the side mirrors becoming cameras. And so the idea that you may have a, a two-inch thick cable going into the door, which could maybe be replaced by a single gigabit Ethernet or, or a 10 gigabit, starts to make manufacturability uh, of, of these modern systems very attractive to, to the car makers. I think what we've seen is, you know, I'd say 90% plus the innovation of the vehicles in the electronics. And with electronics comes more wires. And if you take the old path, you know, everyone put everything on a CAN bus or a LIN bus, more and more wires are starting to occur. So we basically, I think we hit a tipping point and the industry is realizing that. We talked about security. Security is the first thing that the industry realizes. We got to fix security. We have to design, you have to design security in from the start. But now we're, we're running into this roadblock of, I have too many wires. Uh, it's too, too much to deal with these issues with manufacturing, the weight, the cost, the reliability. It's really hit a point where something has to break or change. So that's why we're seeing a big shift in how do I re-architect the vehicle to address all these issues, be, be secure from, from uh, the cloud all the way to the fuel pump, and to be able to have uh, minimal wires and weight in the vehicle so I have the most efficiency, both in, especially with EVs, you know, the range of the vehicle. You know, I've heard Ford in one of the public forums recently said you can take a 40, 50 mile per hour effective EV and put all this ADAS equipment in the back and now it becomes a 20 mile per hour effective, right? Weight, weight is a big deal, right? So uh, all the equipment and such and, and the power that, that some of these things take becomes a constraint. So these are the things that the industry has to deal with. How do I make vehicles uh, more easy to build? Uh, better, higher reliability, and then as we go to EV, how do I make sure I'm providing the range that people want so they'll accept the EVs, right? That was always the thing in the past. Now we're hitting 300 miles, et cetera, and it's becoming attractive because it's it's a good uh, range at least to be acceptable. But all those factors have to go into it. How do I reach reach that 
you know, 300 miles plus. And the cost of the battery is the single biggest uh, cost unit in an electric vehicle. And, you know, if, if you, you know, that's coming down, but if you can also find other ways like this to simplify the manufacturing, the electrical architecture to offset some of that cost, then, then you can make the overall vehicle cost of an EV start to bring that more in line with traditional vehicles. Exactly. Well. And then uh, we'll talk maybe later about ECU consolidation. So ECUs are the boxes within the vehicle, the electronic control units. They're just generically called ECUs. But right now, you know, there's some uh, 175 to 200 of these boxes in the car from all different types of manufacturers and tier ones. Uh, those boxes, just the physical boxes themselves, cost money to build and to make. And uh, there's more cables and connections. And what we see is, you know, how do I reduce that again with the harnesses? How do I also reduce the boxes? That's additional weight and complexity. So what we're seeing is those boxes become more and more software. And now the processors become more higher performance that they can run multiple software uh, uh, loads in parallel and I can start getting rid of boxes and have more almost towards a, a centralized compute architecture. So uh, it's really interesting. There's a lot of things in parallel that are going on in this industry right now and they're all being driven by simplification, lower cost, uh, providing more software capabilities. As we said, a lot of the innovations is electronics, but software going from 100 million lines of code to 300 million lines of code. In the next few years, uh, there's a lot of a lot of things hitting the automotive industry very quickly, and people are starting to react to to be able to address those. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the the evolution of the vehicles over the last 30, 50 years, I and mean, we started putting electronics into vehicles in the 1970s to deal with the first emission standards, and then adding active safety equipment like anti-lock brakes and and other things. And each time we added a feature to a car, you know, yeah, it may come from a different it may come from a different vendor. <laughs> yeah. You know, it comes with its own actuator, its own sensors, and its own its own little computer, which is how we end up with, you know, 100-plus computers in the car that all have to be talking to each other at some point. So let's move into that, you know, that centralized compute or a, a next-generation computing architecture for the vehicle. How do we overcome that problem of all these distributed computers around the car and, and the associated wiring? The kind of first step that the, the industry has been taking is to move to what are known as domain control architectures, where you start to group some of those functions back together. So we talked earlier about whether there would be three, four or five different domains. So you start seeing people doing things like putting all of the ADAS functionality uh, together and then managing it with a more powerful central computer. And then the same maybe for powertrain, the same for, for body electronics. And that's the kind of architectures you're going to start to see appearing over, over the next couple of years. Uh, and they're aimed at reducing those number of boxes and simplifying uh, the connectivity between them. Beyond that, there's some newer architectures that are getting worked on for the maybe 2025 kind of time period and, uh, and beyond. Uh, and there are people starting to look at physical zonal controllers. So this is taking it to the next extreme where you basically say, uh, I'm actually going to locate maybe you know, a central controller and four physical domains, one each corner of the vehicle. And I'll have a simple Ethernet backbone between all of them. And then those modules will look after everything that's required at that corner of the vehicle, whether it's... Uh, body electronics, whether it's lighting, whether it's braking, whether it's steering, and you'll run those functions as virtual functions inside those, those zones. Big, big change in the way software is done in automotive today, but um, a radical simplification in the wiring of the vehicle. 
and the weight of the wiring. So you're starting to see this more in, as Brian called them, disruptive players, where they can actually start from fresh and design a whole architecture themselves. But this means you're, you're talking about being able to go from hundreds of modules. I mean, you're never going to go from hundreds to one, but you'll maybe be able to go from hundreds to 10 or 20 or something like that, or you know, even, even four or five. But that's what we're starting to see is the, the, the next generation. And that means that the computing processes for automotive now have to be uh, capable of running multiple applications independently which has not really been the case most of today's automotive processors are quite traditional simple microcontrollers but you're now talking about running applications in virtual environments so there's a lot of architectural work in on that next generation of, of processors in terms of performance what kinds of levels of performance do we need in these these domain controllers versus a traditional microcontroller ecu there's a massive range of microcontrollers used in automotive today. Um, but they tend to be in the 50 to a couple of hundred megahertz with maybe a, a few cores. What we're talking about in domain controllers is getting into using gigahertz processors, using apps processors in special uh, safety applications. So we're talking about a significant, maybe 10x the, the previous generation, but obviously using far fewer of them. So it's not 10 times the performance and, you know, the same number of modules. It's intended to be 10 times the performance and a significantly reduced number of modules. But what that drives is really uh, more and more software and technologies that have to come into play, like hypervisors and hardware that can actually isolate between those different uh, different modules that, that were effectively right very isolated because they were physically different boxes. How do I emulate separate boxes within within a processor and a lot of new technologies have to come into play to make that safe and secure and to make sure that that uh, that works on on a, on a bigger processor so there's a lot of interesting things going on uh, and we were involved with service-oriented gateways where you can have multiple things and services running in parallel within the box and that brings a lot of new software uh, uh, technologies into play also over the last 15 20 years you know we've, we've all been accustomed to getting um, broadband in the home, you know, having a cable or DSL or fiber connection coming into our house, going through a router, and then get dis getting distributed to all the increasing number of devices we have in our homes, you know, from maybe one or two computers to now perhaps having dozens of devices with light bulbs that you can control from across the country and all, all sorts of other things. What's the analog to that in the, the modern connected vehicle, you know, to ha go having that one pipe coming in and then having this information distributed, and then similarly having the collected information going back out again, how does that how's that going to work in the, the modern connected vehicle? So I, I kind of hinted at the last word, the service-oriented gateway. So in general, what we see today are gateways. We've been seeing gateways come into vehicle for, for some time now. Uh, but what we're going to is what are called service-oriented gateways, which is that 10x performance increase that we've been talking about. And basically, the gateway is very much like that, you know, that router gateway that you have in your home, where you have the cable modem or or other type of uh, ISP provider pumping a big fat pipe to you. Same type of thing. We're now going from 4G to 5G into these gateways. Uh, the gateway has connectivity throughout the vehicle. It's central to the vehicle. So much like you talked about uh, in my house, same thing, probably 30 or 40 devices 
devices are are connected typically wirelessly, uh, but uh, in the car, most of those are, are wired. So you have a wireless connection coming into the gateway and you could have 20 to 25 different connections that go all over the car, whether it's ethernet or what we call the legacy automotive interfaces, which are CAN, LIN, FlexRay, these types of interfaces that they're not gonna go away overnight. Uh, but the gateway is, is the key. It, it brings all that in, it provides isolation, it provides security, and it moves the data efficiently from one part of the vehicle to another and from the cloud also to the different parts of the vehicle. So it's really central to the whole concept of vehicle data. So that gateway, the, having those multiple connections going out, is that what differentiates this really from the telematics control unit that we have today? which is typically maybe only connected to your, your in-vehicle infotainment Exactly, system. and this is an interesting thing of how those architectures will change, but look at the t telematics unit or the TCU, T-Box, there's different names for it, but as we see that, that becomes kind of the centralized place for your, your smart wireless up by on the, the shark fin or up on your roof. That's where it's gonna take all the Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, GPS, all those signals that basically uh, will feed an ethernet, a fat ethernet pipe that goes into the gateway. The gateway is central and, and distributes that, uh, that data throughout the vehicle, whether it's the, the infotainment or it's the, um, the, the ADAS system. Of course, the ADAS, there's a lot of things going on in a, a driver assistance and eventually autonomous driving that needs lots of data and interactivity with the cloud also. And that gateway is a central fundamental, uh, it's required really for, for safety and security reasons also for these new architectures going forward. So this gateway, you know, it's, it's part of this net, network infrastructure that's uh, rapidly changing. What other types of changes are occurring in this, in this gateway module? Is that where you're also embedding a lot of security or are the security components also distributed among those domain controllers? Yes, yeah, so the gateway itself actually does have embedded hardware security in the gateway devices themselves. But it, it actually, you want end-to-end -end security. So even those devices, like I said, your, your fuel pump or your other areas, you want that security. And that's actually one of the benefits that, that we introduced this, the, the S32 family of devices where we have a hardware security edge that goes across from the gateways all the way to the edge nodes throughout the vehicle. And that's really critical because if there's any weak link within that connectivity from the cloud to one of the end devices, that's a security vulnerability, right? So security is very important. You have the front end centralized security that's moving data securely from point A to point B within the vehicle, but you have to maintain the security all the way out to the edge. At this point in the industry, it's a time where we're, we're starting to see massive changes in the way vehicle architecture have been done. You know, you pointed back to, you know, electronics first came in in the, I guess, the late 1970s, or yeah, very mid, end of the 70s, 70s yeah. uh, so the early, early, early yeah. 80s. Um, and everything up to this point has been a, a kind of steady evolution. So, you know, the first connectivity inside the vehicle was CAN networks and they, they've been upgraded. Um, but you're seeing this major step forward where, um, the vehicle starts to be part of the internet of things and all of the information that's there inside the vehicle is now getting opened up to cloud and big data analysis. But you're working inside uh, an industry that has some very justifiable legacy because it took a lot of years to prove the safety and reliability of all these systems. So what you're seeing at the moment is this transition from that traditional industry into a very modern 21st century internet of things kind of vehicle. And what we've been trying to do is act as the conduit of that information 
out through the gateway, but also accommodate the newer and newer systems that are coming from some of those disruptive players as well. So it's trying to combine that upgradeability, but with a, a view of where the world is going within the next five to 10 years. The idea of coping with some of the security challenges, one of the things that we built into all of these uh, modern parts is that safe concept, so safety as, as well as security. Look what happened to the smartphone and, and how that is a tool we use for so many things in our lives. Similar thing is happening here within, within this gateway of various services that can leverage all that vehicle data. So what I think is going to happen is a whole ecosystem of players are going to come into it. And I work with a lot of people that have traditionally been in the IT space, enterprise space. They're now coming into automotive because devices like the S32G that we offer gives them the ability now to participate in the automotive industry where they didn't have the opportunity to do that before. So I think we're going to see a lot of innovation, not just from the disruptors that are in automotive today, but also from the people coming from the IT space that have software capabilities that they want to put into the automobile. They now have a platform to do it. People are starting to experience some of the first OTA capabilities and some of the first connectivity benefits, you know, people being able to see images from the vehicle. Honestly, today, they all feel a little bit clunky because there's not enough there's not enough data bandwidth there's not enough data infrastructure there and the architectures inside the vehicle today just don't lend themselves to that amount of data but you can see the first benefits and you know as you said you know the idea of being able to and I can do it in my car you can on your cell phone you can sit there and go um okay so let's have a look around the car and it'll show you what's there but honestly it's kind of slow to, you know and and the image isn't very good but you know that that could become something really, really valuable. So uh, as Ryan said, we're in the, the kind of we're in the start of this technology. But to really make it work, the vehicle architectures have to have a, a significant upgrade, and that's what we've effectively been working on the the next generation of vehicles coming out in 2021, and then what's the really big steps on in 25 and, and beyond. All right. Well, I want to thank uh, Ray Cornyn and Brian Carlson for joining me here today. I'm Sam Abuol-Samich from Navigant Research, and this has been the NXP Podcast.